We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. Cookie is such a broad term. But again, I think it just totally depends on mood. Like sometimes I want like a hefty, like Levain style, like cross between a muffin and a cookie. And then sometimes I want something, you know, that's more refined, that feels like a sable or something that's just like, you know, more restaurant style. This is Taste. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Cakezine is an independent print magazine exploring society through sweets launched by Tanya Bush and me, Eliza Abarbanel. Our fourth volume, Tough Cookie, presents a hearty batch of trials and triumphs, all in the context of cookies. It's a winter issue that presents recipes difficult in doing and in chewing, but also tales of hungry sharks, aliens, and the pitfalls of viral dessert fame. Today on the show, we dig into everything inside the issue and how we made it happen, plus our recent trip to London and more. I hope you enjoy. Tanya Bush, this is Taste. We are Cakezine. This is the collab episode of my dreams. I'm so honored to be here. Tanya, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast, not just because Tough Cookie, which is our new issue, is my favorite issue of Cakezine so far, but also because we met because of a cookie. We did. A strawberries and cream cookie, right? Yeah. Tanya made the strawberries and cream cookie. Was it for a bake sale? Yeah, it was for like a, it wasn't really a bake sale. I was basically just giving the cookies away for free in the park. It was like deep pandemic days and I was trying to like meet new people and I was baking a ton and I just had so much inventory in my house that I couldn't possibly finish myself. So I was just trying to sort of meet new people and I said into Eliza's DMs. And she said, hey, I have a strawberries and cream cookie for you and I think we live in the same neighborhood. Would you want to get coffee? (laughs) Which sounds really sketchy. It really does. And also, I was anonymous at the time, right? Yeah. Tanya had no photos of herself on her Instagram. It was just photos of baked goods. And I remember (laughs) I was just like leaving the apartment and um, and my friend was like, wait, who are you going to meet? And I was like, honestly, I don't know. I'm just going to like look for somebody holding cookies and see what happens. And not only was the cookie delicious, but like we set off a beautiful friendship and collaborative partnership. We did. And also, it was very brave of you to meet me. Okay. Well, really, it was the strawberries and cream cookie concept that lured me. Also, it was, you know, early pandemic. I was bored. I had not a lot of things to do. What is a strawberries and cream cookie? How did you actually make it? Yeah. So it's made with um, freeze-dried strawberries that you like pulverize essentially. And then it's a pretty like traditional like sugar cookie base with egg yolk, um, I believe a little bit of brown butter, and then just like a really nice sort of like white chocolate that's like cut into shards, melted a little bit on the top, and then a bunch of Malden. Um, And it's like this sort of shockingly pink color. And it just like has all of the all of the flavors one might find in like a strawberry milkshake. It's very, very like wholesome and and pleasurable. So I have to ask, because I don't know if I've ever asked you this, and now I have like the uh, infrastructure of being on the mic. Why Why did you ask me? Why did I ask you? Yeah. Why were you like, hey, come here. Did you ask other people? Oh, my God. This is a really good question. I wish I were. <laughs> I'm like nervous. I don't think so. I think um, I had a sense that we would get along. I knew we were in the same neighborhood. 
I think also, honestly, like it was that moment in the pandemic where I was like, I really need to like meet new people. Like my I had moved to the city only like a year beforehand and was sort of like hungry for like new relationships. And I had maybe some sort of, yeah, subliminal sense, call, call it fate, but had a feeling that we would get along. And so I just sort of sent a message and hoped for the best. And then, you know, we met and it was like, we couldn't stop talking. And I, and I sort of knew. We couldn't stop talking. And now we can talk a lot more, not just about the strawberries and cream cookie, but all of the cookies in this issue, which there are so many good ones. So many cookies. We just were in London, which was so much fun. It was so much fun. Um, got back on Saturday night. We had two different events, one at Orange um, and then one at Maximilian William, which is a really cool gallery. And we got to see Eliza do a, a live podcast moment, which was very fun. Yeah, except for it wasn't recorded. So it was just like a live conversation. But I did use <laughs> my podcast uh, motivation and like state of mind, especially because we got like stuck on the subway coming there, which was stressful. That was a very stressful moment, I have to say. So okay, moving out of stress into the highlights, I'm curious, like coming out of London, like what was your experience like for you? What were your favorite things that we ate? Mm, that's such a good question. Um Okay, well, it was really fun to eat uh, the creme brulee cookie from the issue. So Chloe Rose Crabtree, um, who's the pastry chef at Bake Street London, um, has a recipe in the new issue, Tough Cookie, that's about this creme brulee cookie that has gone viral and is like a, a major draw for this bakery in London. There's this like crazy article about a woman who reset her Tinder radius so that she would only match with people who lived within walking distance of the bakery because she lives far away and she wanted her morning after to always start with one of those cookies. Chloe Rose writes in the head note about how they've been called Stalinists for enforcing cookie limits, which is wild to me that they they only allow people to have one or two cookies a day because they'll sell out so quickly and they're so laborious to create. It's like a three-day process to make this cookie. Yeah, I think four actually. Well, we have the recipe. So if anyone is interested in attempting it and being a tough cookie, that is one thing. But we also had the cookies available at our party at Orange, which was really exciting for everyone. Yeah. And it was really fun to just watch her live brulee it and then get to eat it like piping hot and fresh. And like it really just tastes like the perfect platonic ideal of creme brulee and a like beautiful sugar cookie married together. So that was super fun. Um, I also went to Lyle's and um, the pastry chef Clauda came to our party at Orange and had invited me to come. And I had one of the best desserts I've had in a really long time. It was this really like silky pumpkin ice cream with Buddha's hand and this like gorgeous pumpkin seed oil and salt. And it was just like that perfect balance between savory and sweet and like fresh and punchy and all of the sort of textures and flavors. So that was really fun. And Tanya is an ice cream fanatic. So when you really like an ice cream, I feel like that says a lot about it. Yeah, I, lo I love ice cream. It's probably like my dessert of choice always. And I grew up making ice cream. So hers was really perfect. And she said that it was very laborious that they like cooked down the pumpkin for like 12 hours. And, you know, it was like just this, the perfect temperature. It was like silky smooth, not too cold. So it's like hurting your teeth, but like still sort of like somewhere between like a mousse and like a frozen dessert. It was really beautiful. Yeah, I wish I had tried that. I also want to shout out the salted duck egg yolk cookie that we had at our event at Orange that the pop-up See You Soon, which is doing a residency at Orange, did for us for the party, which was just super salty, obviously, and rich and almost like eating a mooncake, I think was my closest experience. And also just watching the the three chefs, like they have such a fun collaborative communal dynamic. It really reminded me of like watching us or other people mm -hmm. that are collaborators, but also friends. It was very like soul warming for me. It really was. And also 
all of their food was just so phenomenal. Like they had a tonka bean semifredo that I loved, the filet of fish with XO sauce. I will never forget. The filet XO fish, as it's called, which I have, I got the shirts. What? Yeah, I have Uh, one for you. They have little merch for the shirts. And the whole idea behind this is that literally one of the chefs was going through the drive-thru at McDonald's, had a vat of XO sauce in the front seat with him, and then put it on the filet of fish in the moment. And then they took that to make this other version. I think sometimes people doing chefy versions of fast food, like it can come across kind of like weird. But I think in this moment, like it truly was just as greasy and delicious, but also so much thought and care had gone into it. It was a really fun combination. Yeah, it was the best filet of fish I've ever had. What about you? What was your favorite meal? I liked all of those. You know, I'll do a whole rundown with Matt. So I don't want to get us too far afield into savory territory. But I will say that um, the night after our, our event at Maximilian William, I went to Tamil Prince and ate basically everything on the menu. And they have a whole window into the kitchen where you can see three guys who are basically making roti the entire night. That's their like only job. Mm. And it was just a really exceptional meal. And I think one of the fun things about going to London is really like digging into the South Asian food scene there because it is so delicious and developed. And so that was a highlight for me too. Mm, Cool. So we have to go back to London. We really do. We were only there for like five days, six days. But we did a lot. Okay. So we were there not to eat filet XO fish alone, (laughs) but to be promoting the magazine. And I want to just take a step back and say tough cookie. Like how did we land here on this theme? Do you remember when we said it? Yeah, I think it was when we decided to sort of move out of cake entirely, we thought about a year that we were dedicating to idiom. So we we first went into humble pie, which I think was honestly your idea initially, right? Who could say, Who honestly? Could say, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Tough Cookie felt like the perfect sort of twin for for humble pie. And, you know, it's like sort of this like nostalgic term to me, like tough a tough cookie is like obstinate and gritty, but it also like is resilient and it it can sort of hold a lot and it's both really narrow and expansive at the same time. And so I think we were like, okay, we've already moved beyond cake in the pastry case. Uh, what other desserts are available to us? And cookie and toughness felt like the perfect way in. I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, I also come from this food media background where to me, winter is always cookie season, the cookie issue at Bon Appetit when I worked there. And certainly at like every food publication is a marquee moment. And so Mm -hmm. I think knowing we wanted to do a kind of end of year, like loosely holiday issue, like it had to be the cookie issue. I also think we both just really love cookies and, and who does not really. Totally. Yeah. And I feel like every culture has its cookie and like everyone has like memories tied to and in conversation with cookies. And so like it felt like just such a perfect sort of way forward for the magazine. Definitely. And I think that when we got a lot of pitches, it was really fun to see the kind of breadth of options that were available to us. I want to dig into the kind of pieces that made it into the magazine. But first, I'm wondering, like as a pastry chef even and also as a writer, like do cookies occupy a different place in terms of how we think about desserts compared to pie or cake for you? Hmm. I like that question. I think like cookies to me feel more accessible than a cake. Cake is like something that is like, you know, really like celebratory and like higher commitment to make, I think. And like, you know, you have to slice into a cake in order to eat it. Um, You know, a cookie is like something that you can have like one of or two of or three of and go back. And it feels sort of more like snack-like to me in the popular imagination than cake, whereas cake has this sort of like yeah, feeling of like celebration and cookies feel a little bit like more like casual and approachable for like, you know, people who haven't baked as much. 
I think that's right. And I think we can't talk about this without talking about the proliferation of frozen cookie dough and how easy it is to buy a tub of actually good cookie dough and bake it off. Or if you're me or like any teenager in America, eat it raw. You know, I think like there's this kind of you're only 20 minutes away from a cookie at any point in time. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, I was always eating like the Toll House cookie dough when I was in high school, like getting high and <laughs> sneaking it from the freezer. As one does. And and did you know that the Toll House cookie, chocolate chip cookie recipe is the original chocolate chip cookie recipe? No, what do you mean? I found this out and I have been <laughs> hiding this information to share it with you. I, there's this amazing article that I read um, that's about how this woman... Ruth Wakefield, who ran the Toll House restaurant in Whitman, Massachusetts from 1930 to 1967, originated this recipe, the Toll House chocolate crunch cookie at the restaurant. And that is in terms of like credited chocolate chip cookie recipes in existence, the first chocolate chip cookie recipe. Okay, that's very interesting. I feel like in the popular lore, I like once upon a time read that like someone was trying to make a chocolate cookie and then just like broke up shards of chocolate and thought that they were going to melt and like create a chocolate, like a homogenous chocolate cookie. But that was sort of the beginning or impetus of a chocolate chip cookie. I think there's a lot of lore because one of the lore surrounding this is that chocolate chips like accidentally fell into the batter, which I think (laughs) uh, Ruth found very offensive, as would most pastry chefs, that Mm. like you just wouldn't have your kitchen in order in that kind of way. I think Mm -hmm. it was intentional. And then what actually happened is that this woman, Marjorie Husted, who was the voice of Betty Crocker on the Betty Crocker radio show, kind of popularized this recipe for people. And then during the war era, people would start sending chocolate chip cookies abroad to army people. And that is where this like idea of like the home baked chocolate chip cookie Mm -hmm. came from, at least in like the American parlance. That's so interesting. I honestly haven't had a Toll House cookie in a long time. Have you? No, but after this, like, I might just go buy some some cookie dough and eat it on the sidewalk. <laughs> it's a date. I'd love to join. I want to read you just a quote from this article because I found it really interesting just mm. in terms of thinking about how we think about cookies. So it says, in a single inexpensive handheld serving, it contained the very richness and comfort that millions of people were forced to live without in the late 1930s. Ingesting a warm chocolate chip cookie offered the eaters a brief respite from their quotidian woe. Wow, Which, that's, that's poetic. I know. I didn't write it, but it is poetic. <laughs> and I think it does speak to this idea of the fact that you can have just one of a cookie and yeah. that you can freeze the rest or you can buy one at a discounted price. And uh, also kind of like the toughness that went into the making of chocolate chip cookies in the first place, which to me, I think are probably the most iconic cookie in general. Yeah, they totally are. So we do have a chocolate chip cookie in the issue, but we also have a lot of different kinds of cookies as well. I'm wondering if you have any like favorite recipes in the issue or ones that you found like most interesting as an editor. Mm. I was really excited to get uh, Brianna Holt's uh, chocolate cornmeal fennel cookie in. Um, she is a baker who I've admired for a long time. She's, She's a pastry tandem. chef. Yeah. She's the pastry chef at a Tandem in Portland and... Portland, Maine. Portland, Maine. Right. There are two Portlands. Um... And she makes these like iconic biscuits that I'd coveted the recipe for for a long time and then was able to purchase during the pandemic. And yeah, I was really excited to get to work with her. And I think that this cookie is a tough sell. That was sort of like the hook for her that like she has always loved fennel and it gives it this sort of like minty, like sort of floral finish and that like it's not something that 
was flying off the shelves in the same way that, you know, quote, the party curls did, the chocolate chunks, the, you know, spicy ginger molasses cookies. And so, you know, I was really excited to get this recipe just because I really wanted to eat it. And I'd been like admiring it um, online before, but also because I think Brianna has such a like distinctive voice, like writerly voice. And when the head note first came in, I was sort of floored. I was like, this is really like dynamic and singular and vivid and really interesting and like very much sort of like proves the concept of, I think, a lot of what Casey is trying to do, which is to give, you know, folks in kitchens the opportunity to like reflect on and think more broadly about their food in more literary ways. And she did that so like beautifully. And the cookies are really fucking good. I agree. And I also think like I've been in other editorial rooms before where the concept of a recipe being a fit for something because nobody wants to order it would not fly. <laughs> like that's a kind of, diff- it's a <laughs> totally. literally difficult sell, but I think um, we trust her as a baker and we also kind of trust our audience that um, if someone that is respected, like whose work they admire is saying something is good and that you should give it a shot, even though it doesn't necessarily have the glossy sheen of another cookie that like that actually does fit, especially in the context of a tough cookie issue. Yeah, totally. And obviously Abby Balangit makes that cookie look really, really good. Yeah. Abby, who is the author author of the wonderful Filipino dessert cookbook, Mayumu, who also contributed a recipe for this issue, which is a guava hard candy stained glass cookie, was one of the like models that we brought in for the photo shoot, which this is the first time we've ever shot food in the context of people, which also I think speaks to the fact that you can eat just one cookie as opposed to like we couldn't shoot someone taking a bite into an entire cake. That's so true. We could have tried though. We could have tried, but I I think this was the right moment. And I think that Abby's cookies are really fun for the issue because she has you pulverize these guava hard candies that you often would get like with the check when you're like eating somewhere in Chinatown. And then you melt them into these um, stained glass cookies where it's, it's two cookies layered together. Right. And that's how you get this kind of beautiful effect that almost looks like a Christmas ornament. Mm. Would you say that's your favorite cookie of the issue? Yeah, I really like sour things. Um, Mm. And I think having a sour cookie is pretty unusual. So I like the fact that the hard candy is kind of leaning into that. And then she also has the salted plum powder kind of stardusted on top. Um, So it's a beautiful cookie. And it also is kind of an unusually eaten cookie compared to a lot of other ones. Yeah, it's like disco technicolor. It's so vivid and fun to look at. Disco cookie is a really... Disco cookie. That should have been our theme. (laughs) Shit, can we go back? We (laughs) We do. (laughs) We could go back. Okay, so these are some of the recipes in the issue. I want to talk about some of the pieces that are in it because I think what's so fun with cakes and especially with this issue is the variety of content that can kind of fit under this seemingly niche theme. So I'm wondering as an editor, were there any kind of like pet stories that you worked on or really kind of wanted to see through? Mm-hmm. Obviously we love everything, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love all our children equally. Um, I think well, this so we have the most fiction that we've ever had in this issue. We have um, flash fiction by Catherine Lacey and Hilary Leichter, who are both writers who I've really admired for a long time. And then also a sort of longer story by Melissa Lozada Oliva. And all three of these stories are very, like, strange and surreal. And I was thinking about, like, what it is about fiction that sort of, like, helps further these food narratives. And I I thought it was sort of striking that, like, all three of these pieces are, like, taking something as, like, mundane as a cookie, taking them into sort of, like, fantastical realms. So, like, in Hillary's piece, and she's also the author of Temporary and 
Tara story. Mm-hmm. Um, in Hillary's piece, uh, we have a woman who's like inhabiting a gingerbread house, like the one that like a child would make. And it's told in a very sort of like straightforward, almost Alice Monroe-esque way but like she's living in a gingerbread house and it's starting to sort of like crumble around her but at first you don't realize she's mentioning that the staircase is a little sticky and oh maybe she just didn't clean that well and that like the cobwebs are sugar like and then you realize oh it's not a metaphor it's actually a gingerbread house exactly these sort of like alarming cookie encrusted details are making their way through the narrative and you start to realize like oh something is not what it seems here um and then you know in in Catherine Lacey's piece, we have a bunch of adults like waiting in line for this viral sort of, you know, famous cookie. And at first it sort of has this air of like mundanity, like, you know, we've all done this before. We've waited in line for something. And then it it becomes clear that, you know, in order to get the allotted cookie, you have to meet the artisan's demands. And this this artisan is potentially subjecting people in line to like psychological or physical torture. And so Which had- I love because I think that like the absurdity of waiting in a viral cookie line is stranger than fiction, but it is fiction in this piece. Um, and honestly, who among us has not waited in a viral cookie line or something similar? And maybe you don't actually have to prostrate yourself in front of a baker, but there is a certain degree of like, how long are you going to wait? Is this actually going to be worth it? Totally. I like all of those. I think like I don't edit fiction, so I just love to read them when they come in and and have them in that context. Another kind of maybe seemingly unconventional piece in this issue that was really a pet project of mine is this piece, uh, If You Give a Shark a Cookie, that Sabrina Imbler wrote for us, which is not about any sort of, well, I guess you could eat it, but it's about a the cookie cutter <laughs> shark, uh, which is a Are real- Are they edible? I mean, you can eat anything if you really put it's your true. mind to it, but I think they're probably protected. I would not advise eating this shark, but the shark is called the cookie cutter shark because it takes- perfect circular bites out of all of its victims. Um, There's a really great collage in the piece that kind of showcases like why the bites are so perfect that they would be called cookie cutter. Um, And then Sabrina does such a great job as they do in all of their writing of kind of connecting these very alien sea creatures to very human experiences. In this one, it's kind of like using the shark as a motivational figure because the shark is eating orcas and Uh, Great Whites and submarines, all of these things that are much bigger than the shark itself. And they're kind of inviting us to be taking bites out of things that are larger than our own, Um, which the piece came about because I literally just started sending Sabrina links to different cookie-based sea creatures, of which (laughs) there are maybe five on Wikipedia. What are the other ones? Uh, Oh, no. There's a starfish that's called like the cookie starfish. Mm -hmm. I think that's the only one I could riff off the top of my head, but... Mm. A couple of them are out there, which I think is fun on multiple levels because it shows that scientists, which I would think of as maybe being clinical, um, are thinking about cookies when they're naming creatures, which is kind of wholesome and sweet. And then at the same time, it's a a shark that's um, taking bites out of people, which is maybe like not so sweet at all. Yeah. I think that's what's really cool about this issue is that like we have so many different iterations of what a tough cookie can be. We have like metaphorical cookies you know, in like sort of the HTML variety, we have Gabriella Burnham, who's a novelist who wrote a really interesting piece about um, freezing your eggs. We have um, The Cookie Monster in Times Square, which was also one of your pet pieces. Yeah. So we record the Taste podcast close to Times Square. Um, I don't often see the mascots on my way to work, which honestly, maybe I should reroute my commute so I can experience this more. But there are people that dress up as Cookie Monster in Times Square. And we did send out a reporter, Katie Way, to find and interview someone that dresses up as the Cookie Monster about the ins and outs of a job that can only be described as tough. 
Did we ever invite them to our party? Uh, we did not invite the Cookie Monster to the party, which maybe is a misstep, but I do plan on bringing him a magazine, mm. and I would love to get a photo of the Cookie Monster reading the magazine in Times Square. I think that would be so perfect. It would. So I want to talk a little bit about mass-produced cookies, because I mm-hmm. think this is another thing that sets cookies apart from, say, pies or cakes, which is that there are so many like snack cookies, such as like Oreo or Nutter Butter, that are out there. Um and I'm just thinking that like people are more likely to buy a mass-produced cookie than they would be a cake. Does that mm-hmm. resonate with you? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, again, sort of this like lower commitment snacking quality to a cookie. I mean, I remember eating a lot of um, f- bags of Famous Amos. Do you remember those? They were the chocolate chip cookies. Yeah, but they're a thin cookie, a thin snappy cookie. No, no they're, that's a tape. No, they're, that's a tape. The, the Famous Amos are like – they're like sort of the size of a quarter and they're kind of thick and they're like sandy, ten, sandy, yeah, yeah, crumbly, sort of like 10 to 15 cookies per bag. And I always loved the abundance of that. So I would buy, buy the bags and then they would like, uh, crumble when you dipped them in milk in a really pleasing way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's like, they're, they're just sort of like a perfect treat, like a nice little snack in a way that like, you know, maybe like a, a Yoho or like a Duncan Hines cake feels a little bit like heavier and more intense. Right. And also like, you know, I'm not a professional baker, but I would never even dream of making an Oreo. Like they've done that really well. You can buy it in the store. Mm-hmm. You don't have to make your own. So true. So true. So in this issue, how are we kind of fitting in these kind of mass produced cookies? One story that comes to mind for me is about um, a factory in Toronto that makes, among other things, Oreos and all of these other mass produced cookies. And it's kind of a fun story because it really is talking about all of these people who have immigrated to Canada and have found a new life and a new job working at the cookie factory. Was that the kind of story you expected we would get? I don't know. I think that I think it felt like a very cakezine piece, right, to sort of like dive into something that like we all take for granted, like, you know, Oreos mass produced and on the shelf at any given convenience store that we go to and, you know, sort of unraveling how they come to be and the kinds of hands and people who are bringing them into fruition. Um, And I love that story. I loved so many of Subin's details. I thought they were really really interesting the the fact that there's a store next to the factory where they sell like you know off-kilter cookies that are not exactly perfect and people like from the surrounding areas go in and buy them um, at a discounted price and that was just such an interesting idea and detail um and then I also of course think about uh Jack Bernhard's story about Lorna Dunes um which is another sort of iconic mass-produced cookie and the way that they are sort of utilized as currency in the psych ward where um he was he was spending uh Christmas um I think this past year yeah which I just have to say the name of that piece because I was really proud of the title which is the Dooney bin <laughs> the Dooney bin it's so punny and and it's really like um fun I think and fun and serious at the same time to be reading about these snack cookies being used as kind of like black market currency to be getting like currying favor or kind of like making your way in this world where like you know you can't actually be using real money like you've been admitted into the psych ward um and I think going back to the Oreo factory piece something that I really like about about it is that I think um, we often in Cakesian and certainly at Taste as well try to talk about stories and food in a really personal way. Like these are the people that are growing your food. This is the way you cook something. But of course, like the cookies are being made in a factory, not by a grandma somewhere. And so I think to like have that connection is a nice kind of recentering of like this is like the larger food world and not just like the food media world. Mm, totally. And we're getting like a broader perspective via um, the Oreo story and then a really personal, personal iteration of it via the 
the uh, Lorna Dunes. Yes. And I wanted to ask you, one of the pieces in the issue is about the death of browser cookies. So literally when you go on a website and it says accept cookies and you have the yes or no, have you thought differently about accepting cookies since we edited this story? (laughs) I was always accepting cookies. (laughs) I was just like, Sure. It's, it's the cost it's the cost I pay for like fast internet. I had literally no concept of what they actually did. I, you know, sort of amorphously understood that they were tracking me in some way, but I knew that I was being tracked regardless. Uh VCN and Art Collective wrote a piece about the death of the browser cookie. It's sort of like an obituary for this, you know, constitutive piece of technology that is now becoming obsolete as we are being tracked increasingly through our smartphones and through our app usage. We don't even need to accept cookies. The tracking is just happening. It's just happening. Yeah. So now I'm sort of like, you know, I'm being tracked regardless. Like the surveillance state is ever present. Like, what am I to do? You know, if I decline cookies, it's not really going to change things. What about you? Well, I've always been rejecting them because I'm a contrarian, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's interesting because after editing the piece, I started noticing like the language the different websites would use when they were asking to accept cookies. And especially when we were in the UK, I was noticing like there's kind of a a funny like "Mm, cookies, except like people are riffing off of the fact that this kind of surveillance tech has been given a friendly name that people have positive associations with. And uh, kind of like making it seem like more of a fun offer, which is just kind of amusing to me. Um, and honestly, like it probably does work a lot because here you are accepting cookies like everywhere you go. Totally. I'm like, oh yeah, like I'll take a cookie. Why not? <laughs> it just has such an innocuous name for something that's so insidious and in its but is form and function. Exactly. <laughs> I like all of that. Um, So we talked a little bit about our London events at the beginning of this episode. I think by the time this episode comes out, we will have gotten past our New York event as well. And as Mm -hmm. listeners of our previous episodes might know, we spend a lot of time and effort making launch parties. Um, We spend more time making the magazine for sure, but certainly an inadvisable amount of time on the launch parties. I'm wondering, like, why do you think we're still doing this and like spending so much time on the parties? Mm. Well, it feels like an editorial project, right? Like I think it's a way of like bringing people together to celebrate this magazine, this very like tangible thing that we spend a lot of time making and convening all of the many people who are involved in that, right? Like we have so many New York-based contributors and artists and bakers and friends who like we want to gather and celebrate with. And, you know, I think that also it's a really lovely way to, like, bring to life the issue. So, like, we have some cookies that, you know, the recipes for the cookies are in the issue and people will get to eat them while they're at the party. We have tattoos. Yes, which I've actually never gotten a tattoo at a cake scene party. And I'm wondering if this might be the time because we just got the tattoo flashy on our way over here. And there's, like, a tooth. There's a fortune cookie. There's a knife, which I think is, like, maybe too chefy for someone like me that's a non-chef. But I think if anyone gets the tattoo that says tough cookie, we're going to have to give them, I don't know, something. like Lifetime fr- supply of cake scene. <laughs> Lifetime supply of cake scene, like free entry into the next party, something like that. I think like when we started doing our events and the magazine, which was almost two years ago, uh, and we had tattoos at the first party, it was just kind of a fun idea. And when I mention it to people, they're kind of always like, whoa, people are getting tattooed at, at the party. Like it's kind of a, an element of surprise, but yeah. I'm not that surprised by it. People always ask me if they're real tattoos. They think that they're temporary tattoos. And I'm like, no, 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 babe. Okay, so I blame this on 2013 Coachella, Vanessa Hudgens, 
because there was this brand called Flash Tattoos that were temporary tattoos that mm. were kind of this like boho chic. Do you remember this? No, I really don't. It's very much of the like feathers in the hair era uh, of fashion. Mm-hmm. But this brand was called Flash Tattoos. And also when a tattoo artist is making a set of designs that's available for to be tattooed in a specific context, that is called a flash sheet. So when we say flash tattoos, we mean there's a set amount of designs you can get tattooed at the party. But I think maybe some people got tipped off to this other like temporary tattoo brand. And so that's what they're thinking of. Yeah. I also think people are just incredulous. They they can't really believe that people are going to get like permanent party favors of like cookies on but, their body. But we sell out like the first 10 minutes, I would say all the slots oh, are yeah. full. Because there's one For tattoo sure. artist. She's taking her time. She's doing a good job. She actually is Tanya's pastry assistant at Little Egg. Shout out to Evelyn Wang. Shout out to Evelyn who makes cookies and tattoos of cookies, which is kind of the <laughs> most perfect combination. Iconic. And, and, you know, I think it speaks to this moment we are at where food culture has permeated our culture so much that um, having a tattoo of food is something that is really widely accepted, like not just in people that work in food, but just anyone that like loves food, which is kind of our demographic. Totally. Which is actually a story that I wrote for Taste that we can link to in the show notes that is about the proliferation of food tattoos as a kind of a cultural moment. Mm. You have one, right? I do. Well, my very first tattoo, shout out to my parents. <laughs> is, <laughs> Hi, um, Stacey and Josh. Yeah, is a, they've seen it. Um, is a collection of citrus that I grew up with in Los Angeles. So I have an orange, a lemon, and then figs, which are actually not citrus at all. But it's a still life. And that was the very first tattoo that I got it. And for me, I think... Obviously, I love eating citrus, but it was more about the way that food symbolized something that was like so special and important to me. And I think that going into the party, like there are some people that probably just want a carton of milk because they like the vibe. But I'm sure there are other people that it does kind of connect to something deeper, which I think is the goal with everything we do in the magazine. That something like a tough cookie magazine seems like it could be kind of like silly and not that serious, but that it can be talking about these really like deeper issues as well. Totally. Okay. My real question for you is when are we getting Kigzine tattoos? Oh, do you want it to say cake seed or is it going to be something else? No, maybe like a slice of cake. Well, whenever Tanya's ready to get her first tattoo, I will get (laughs) this. I'll get this one with you. I'm tabula rasa, baby. I'm waiting for the right moment. Okay. Well, we'll find it. Maybe when we go back to cake for a future issue. Mm, mm -hmm. I do want to do wedding cake. Me too. And birthday cake is always there. We'll come back to it. Right for the taking. But right now we're still on cookies. And so to close, I want to do like a rapid fire Mm. questions with you. And they're all kind of centered on cookies. Are you ready? Hell yeah, I'm ready. Okay. um, Hard chocolate chip cookie or soft chocolate chip cookie? Ooh, soft. Would you ever do a hard one or no? I like a hard one in the right context. Like a Tate's is nice for me in the context of an ice cream sandwich, but I would much prefer like a warm, gooey, soft, supple chocolate chip cookie. I was going to say, for me, the only right context for a hard cookie is an ice cream sandwich. Totally. Vanilla ice cream? Yeah. I mean, or anything. Tahini ice cream, if I'm going after, you know, something a little like more savory. Well, okay. We're deviating from the rapid fire, but I just have to give a quick shout out to this very specific chocolate chip cookie ice cream sandwich called an It's It. Have you had one before? No. Oh, okay. I need to find one for you because I grew up with these. They're Northern California regional ice cream sandwich that has Mm. very thick oatmeal cookies, vanilla, coffee, or mint ice cream in the center. And then the whole thing is encased in a dark chocolate shell. Um, It's a meal. It's like the heftiest ice cream sandwich I've ever had. And I went to Jewish summer camp in Northern California and they would give them to us on Shabbat and it made the most like chaotic sugar frenzy campers known to mankind. But it's a really like 
crazy ice cream sandwich. Okay, damn, I have to try one. I feel like all I had growing up was like a chip witch and that <laughs> that was sating. No, like an it's it could be a weapon probably. It's a hefty <laughs> sandwich and they sell them at Green Grape in Fort Greene. So oh, they're I will, still around? Yeah, they're still around and they sell them at a couple like boutiques on the East Coast. So I will keep an eye out for you and we can have one. It's my Hanukkah gift. Okay, back to the rapid fire. Eating raw cookie dough, yes or no? Absolutely, yes. I've had salmonella. It's worth it. How was it? <laughs> I mean, it was a really bad time. <laughs> I was hospitalized, but I'm willing to take the risk. You can't be daunted. I can't be daunted, no. Also, like, I... I taste all my doughs when I'm baking. I'm like a huge proponent of tasting for like salt levels and for flavor, which obviously is going to change a little bit in the oven, but I do think you get a good sense of it. So yeah, I'm always tasting my doughs. Okay. I also would eat raw cookie dough, although I probably wouldn't eat like multiple cookies worth. Yeah. Agree. Just taste. Okay. Dunking in milk. Yes or no? Absolutely. Yes. Dairy milk. Dairy milk always. Without question. Without question. I mean, I think there's a, like a context for almond milk. I have like a Khalifa Farms, like vanilla almond milk that I like that's a little bit lighter than whole milk. But generally speaking, I like whole milk really, for sure. Nice. Okay. Favorite cookie recipe? Ooh, that's hard. I, I don't, know. I don't, because, because cookie is such a broad term. Well, what comes there to mind so when many I say cookies. that? Um, I do really love a shortbread, um, like a sort of like, Buckwheat or rye, something with like a sort of like nutty, toasty flavor, maybe some citrus forward. Um, I'm trying to think of like what what the recipes that I like are. Brianna Hold actually, I think in Bon Appetit has a really nice like rye citrus shortbread that I really like that's coated in sesame and turbinado sugar. That's really nice. Um, but again, I think it just totally depends on mood. Like sometimes I want like a hefty, like Levain style, like cross between a muffin and a cookie. And then sometimes I want something you know, that's more refined, that feels like a sublé or something that's just like, you know, more restaurant style. Definitely. I think the first recipe that comes to mind for me is a buckwheat chocolate chip cookie recipe that Sarah Jempel did at Bon Appetit when I was there. It is my ultimate chocolate chip cookie. The buckwheat flour, I think, gives it this kind of nutty savoriness. And I went through a time during the pandemic when I would very often make a double batch of this cookie dough and then freeze it Mm. in little pucks and then bake off like a chocolate chip cookie for dessert every night. And I think that like that is my end of year plan is to batch out cookie dough again. I love that. Do you do you eat them with anything? Do you dip in milk? Uh, no, I'm not a milk drinker. I would actually dip it in coffee if I'm like getting ready to like go out like a dessert coffee moment. <laughs> That's my preferred cookie mechanism. Okay. Last one. Favorite store-bought cookie. Mm. Okay, I think toss-up between a Nutter Butter, which I love, and an Oreo, honestly, and I love an Oreo dipped in peanut butter, like throwback to the parent trap, but it really, I'm a peanut butter girly. We both love peanut butter chocolate, and it's a winning combo. Okay, those are the two cookies I was also going to say. Really? Yeah, but only because I, Nutter Butter, I love a peanut butter cookie, but an Oreo dipped in like the most unnatural, sugary peanut butter on the shelf, like yes, Jif, Jif, Jif or Skippy. Skippy, yeah as the parent trap would, would like, is to me my favorite. Oh my God, it's because we're both twins. Yes. That's so funny. Well, okay, now we're going to have to go eat some raw cookie dough in the street. Um, and if you're listening to this, maybe watch out for Salmonella, but also you can go buy the new issue of Tough Cookie at www.cakezine.com. Thank you so much, Tanya. Thanks, Liza. So, 
So, Eliza, you were just in London, and I wanted to just, like, pick your brain and hear about the trip. I know you were there with Tanya Bush, your, your co-editor at Cake Scene. You were doing a bunch of cool events. You just had uh, her on the show. But tell me, how the heck was London? London was so much fun, and I had been there like eight years ago and I hadn't been back since. And we actually were with a big group, maybe like eight to 10 people from New York who Fun. are affiliated with CakeZine in like a professional or personal capacity. Group trip. Yeah, we had like this big house we were all staying in off Brick Lane. It was very funny. Um, and so we had a couple group meals, but most of the time we split off just because you can't like roll up into a restaurant with like eight people, especially eight Americans and say, hey, do you have a table for us? <laughs> uh, but we had some really great meals and I saw some good art and had some really fun cake scene events as well. Yeah. So w what's your favorite cake scene event? Not your favorite, but what was one that comes to mind event you did? Well, we just did two. So they were fun in different ways. We did a conversation at Maximilian William Gallery, which was quite special. And we did a whole installation of our back issues and our current one in this shelf in the front of their space. But the one that's more food focused is that we did a party at Orange, which is a very great yeah. natural wine bar and restaurant off of Brick Lane and had three bakers come in with cookies that were all very special. And then also stayed and had dinner with the pop-up that was happening oh, there. Fun. And it was just like a really fun vibe and the food was quite great. So I was in London in June, and I, I think I did an episode about it. I went to some spots. But what, what is your assessment of, of how London is is kind of like post-pandemic? What's the vibe like on the streets? Well, you know, I was there so long ago that, like, to me, it felt the same. And also, like, you know, I yeah. can't even really remember what to compare it to. I feel like there's a lot of people around. There's a lot of, like, I'd say, like, different kinds of restaurants that we went to. I think, like, I have maybe four or five favorites that I could run down if you want. I love here. it. Let's absolutely do that. Okay. And you have to tell me if you've been and sure. you like them also. Definitely. Well, the first really special meal we had was uh, this pop-up that's happening at Orange is a group of three chefs. They're based in Toronto most of the time, although they're kind of on like the world tour pop-up era. Mm -hmm. uh, they're called See You Soon as a collective. And they did a salted duck egg yolk cookie for our party. And then we stayed and had all of their food. And they are doing just like really fun, imaginative dishes. We had something they call a filet exo fish, which is a filet of fish with exo sauce. Yeah. That was like quite special. I also really like this sweetbreads dish that they had. Sweetbreads were all over the menus in London. I would say eating like organ meat and that kind of thing is, is pretty popular. I mean, popular. it's the St. John Fergus Henderson effect. Definitely. But these sweetbreads were like quite crispy and tangy and they were like tossed in all of these herbs. It was like Love definitely that. my favorite sweetbread I've ever had. I also really liked a dish they did with beets where they had these really beautiful marinated beets cut out into little star shapes oh, and then my. they were served on a pool of beet puree. So you kind of had this double creamy soft texture super whimsical cool really cool fun yeah. that was really great we went to cafe cecilia as yeah. like every industry person told us to go to <laughs> totally did you eat there i never made it there it was on my list i was there for only 48 hours but yeah yeah that was really special i really liked this like punterelle salad that we had and also their pastas were quite good there was a like mushroom ricotta stuffed pasta that was really great and also like a pork schnitzel with oh yeah runny egg and sage mm -hmm. on top so that was special especially for lunch um, and then we went to a place called Tamil Prince for dinner, which is like a kind of new school pub that's doing really great um, Southeast Asian yeah. food. They have a window where you can see these three guys that are just making 
roti the whole night. Like that's their entire job. Um, wow. And it's pub style. Is like a it's like a like a pub pub. I mean, like aesthetic? I feel like when you say pub, that can mean a lot of different yeah, things. Yeah, totally. It's not like there's like the center bar with like the chalkboards and like the Guinness yeah. on tap necessarily. It's kind of more of like a contemporary. Got it. I hate to say the word gastro pub, but gastro like that pub. kind of vibe. You said but it. It's a neighborhood corner restaurant, yeah. and it's pretty casual. And we sat at the bar and just ate like probably everything on the menu. I think the grilled lamb chops were maybe my favorite. And they also did a really, I mean, everything was great. I yeah. couldn't even say one. That's when you say places. Southeast Asian, is there like um, a, a real focus or is it just like mining from all over? Um, I mean, I think like because they're called like the Tamil Prince, like that region is kind of being highlighted. But it felt like there was a pretty like nice mix of different things. There were some great like dosa that we had. Yeah. I had a really good um, just kind of like smoky cumin-y uh, chicken curry that was really special it was right after we did our event at the gallery so I was kind of in my like post conversation yeah phase. you were like so needed I, sustenance yeah I ordered nothing I just ate everything that came my way from everyone's <laughs> so table which was really nice yeah and there was one more place that I wanted to call out hmm. is this killing right it was Kiln. Yeah, Thank you so much. Yeah, we were much. chatting off mic about that. Yeah, it was Kiln. Um, and we sat right up on the grill and just got to watch these people cooking over live fire. They have all these clay pots going. They're tossing charcoal like to each other. It must have been, I don't even know how hot behind the counter, but it was really cool to sit and watch. And we had some like really good, delicious things. Honestly, like the grilled greens they did was kind of a surprise for me. I love um, that group does Brat as well. And yeah. I went to Brat when I was um, in London in June. And I've heard nothing but great things about Kiln. And what you're saying is exactly this like live fire cooking. It sounds amazing. Yeah, they did a really good like, glass noodle dish with crab and pork. That was really special. Solid. And honestly, all of the little skewers that we were just eating and having them toss them out quickly. And that was a restaurant that we didn't have a reservation for that I was kind of like, I don't know, can we get there? And we just like popped in for lunch, sat at yeah. the counter. And that was definitely like the way to do it. And you got to see Jonathan Nunn from Vittles too. I did. We talked all about you. Oh, <laughs> please. All good things. No, um, I'm just such a huge fan of Vittles. I love what he's doing. Yeah, me too. I think it's really cool also to get to trade perspectives on yeah. food media because I think like being here in America, I have a certain perspective of like UK food media. Yeah. And then he, I think, has almost the reverse conception. So it was kind of interesting to kind of trade perspectives and also to be there on behalf of Cakesy and like talking to someone yep. else that's running an independent like food media venture is always kind of heartening and interesting. Yeah, like with the cake scene, you know, Vittles is independently published and it's just at the top of its game rivaling all major, you know, food media. I just want to say I, I love Cake Scene. I love what you've done. I can't believe you've done so much in such a little time. I know this conversation earlier, you you and your partner Tanya talked about it. But man, Eliza, congratulations. What a what a huge accomplishment. Thank you. I'm excited to take a very long nap when all of this is done. <laughs> yeah. But it was it was really like such an honor, I think, to be in London. And whenever we went to Paris over the summer, whenever we go to a city where we've never been to before, I kind of have this question mark of like, who are these people and are they actually going to show up? And I think when you see people in the space, like, again, there were people with cake tattoos and like knife earrings and this kind of like kind of person is available in all of these places and is like really interested in like literally hungry, I think, for um just unconventional food writing. And it's really special to get to see that and to get to eat good food along yeah, the way. It's it's special. And uh where do you want to take it next? Is there a city uh, on your wish list? We've been we've been talking about it. We've kind of reached a point where like, you know, to this group of people that are traveling with us, it's like, oh like where do you want to go? Exactly. You have a team now. Yeah. We went to Tanya and I went to Mexico City last January yeah. for Index Art Book Fair, which was really fun. And we don't plan to like have a formal stall there this year, but we do have stockists. So 
I always want to go back to Mexico City. So maybe that would be one. Honestly, I'd love to go back to Paris. But for now, you know, we're planning our New York event. So So that's up next. Thanks for chatting, Eliza. Yeah. Great to talk about London with you. This is Taste is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.